Welcome to the Socratic State of Mind podcast. I'm Andrew Perlott, and today is part two of my interview with Donald Robertson. We talk about the psychological utility, or lack thereof, of venting. We talk about Donald's personal stoic practice. We talk about whether or not society essentially gives people what amounts to reverse therapy, making them more fragile psychologically speaking, and much more. I hope you enjoy. Occasionally, someone will, let's say, vent or get something off their chest. And they often want to do this because they find that it gives them relief. And I kind of have trouble believing that there isn't a side of that that they're not looking at. Like it's it's reinforcing a of like how tightly they're gripping onto their particular viewpoint. And I wonder, is is venting helpful? And uh, is there an alternative to venting that is more psychologically helpful? Well, that's a whole can of worms, right? Let me figure out, I can connect it to several other things we've said already. So first of all, I said that I was a techniques guy and I categorized and studied lots of different techniques. Of all the many different psychological strategies that have been used in psychotherapy over the past century and a half or so, um, the the one that's most obviously a dead end is catharsis, venting, abreaction, or whatever you want to call it. And it was one of the oldest techniques. It wasn't the earliest. Uh, it was really Freud and Joseph Breuer kind of popularized it. They they took the word catharsis from Aristotle, who, who probably meant something different by it. But they mean expressing emotions that are pent up. Even Sigmund Freud, and Freud was wrong about most things. And Freud was a really weird guy and wrong about almost everything he said. But even Freud recognized that the cathartic method wasn't really that effective and he abandoned using it. But it went through a kind of renaissance. Well, some people continued using it. And then it went through a bit of a renaissance in the 60s and 70s. But now in in evidence-based practice, it's not uh, generally, we don't use that for anything. Um, That said, I also said advice giving, you know, the problem is that it's hard to say what's going to work for individual clients. And if I was being really honest about it, I'd say there, there are things that you could do while venting emotion that might make it therapeutic. Like there could be ways of adapting it. So there might be some individuals that instinctively use venting in a way, or there might be context, like say when someone's bereaved, it seems that venting can potentially be part of the natural process of grieving and can be beneficial for them. Um, in other situations, like in anger management, um, venting generally doesn't seem to be helpful. There's studies that show, in some cases, venting can actually make angry people even angrier over the long term. Because the other way of looking at it, Freud thought emotions were kind of built up in the unconscious mind. He had what researchers, what historians of psychology call a, a hydraulic model of the mind. So he thought emotions kind of build up inside you. And it's like lancing a boil or something like that. You need to kind of get it, relieve the pressure by getting emotion out. Now, that that's just not how emotion works. It's like a weird, primitive, mythological idea about what emotions are. There, there is no place where emotions... He thought there was a place called the unconscious mind. It's like, you know, like the realm of the unknown or something. Mm-hmm. And pressure could build up in it. Like, But this is all a really odd, figurative way of speaking. There's not literally a place where pressure builds up and things are going to bust out of it. That would be like me saying, you know, there's pressure building up in the realm of the unknown. Like it's it's not literally, that's just a really odd way of describing, you know, the realm of the unknown isn't a physical place. 
right? I can make it sound like it is, you know, but it'd be weird to think of it as building up pressure in that way and then interpret that kind of literally. That's what Freud basically does with the unconscious mind. He talks about it as if it's an actual physical place where pressure mounts and has to be relieved, which is a, a weird pseudoscientific primitive way of understanding what's going on between your ears. Um, now, what most people today would say, um, based on what we know about uh, cognitive and behavioral psychology, is that often if somebody expresses an emotion repeatedly, rather than relieving it, they make it more habitual. It would be like, you know, if you do press-ups, Every day you strengthen the muscles and you get better at doing press-ups. Like, you know, if you keep... What they used to do for our venting and anger management was they'd get a pillow and a baseball bat and you'd take you out in a parking lot like, and you'd whack a pillow with a baseball bat and shout at it like it's your ex-wife or your boss at work or whoever it is that you're mad at. You get all out of your system, hmm. right? But often when people did that, they just got even angrier. I call it the... Mike Tyson model of therapy. Hmm. Like, because if venting anger was therapeutic, then Mike Tyson would be the most chilled out. He'd be like a big pussycat. Like, he would have got it all out of his system in the boxing ring by now, surely. Yeah. Like, but I don't know that I don't, I don't want to characterize any individual, but I don't think Mike Tyson is a big pussycat, like a really chilled out, mellow guy. You know, uh, you know, do engaging in aggressive, violent behavior even in the context of sports, doesn't necessarily get out of your system. That said, some people say martial arts does that for them. Like, you know, it has a kind of cathartic, beneficial therapeutic effect. So I think it would, if you're going to punch someone in the face in order to relieve your feelings of anger and aggression, I think it may or may not work. Like, it probably depends on you, the context, and the way in which you're doing it. Like, And so that comes back to this idea of if we just give people a formula, like a rule to follow, They'll often follow it rigidly, even when it's not actually working out. For these guys are whacking, you know, they don't understand whether it's just making them even angrier, but they're going to carry on using this venting technique, mm. even though it makes them feel worse. So out of but out of all, we can make some generalizations. And and venting, I would say, has got has fared less well overall than most other comparable therapy techniques. It's not used that much. Um, people that believe that venting is is good. Um, often it causes interpersonal problems, like it pisses off other people, mm. like, and it can just reinforce habits. It might, as you, I think, were alluding to way back when you first brought this up, I did remember, I think you were talking about how it, it might actually just reinforce the underlying attitudes and beliefs cognitively. Mm. Um, so if I just go how, sh uh, how crappy my life is, um, and I'm kind of venting and expressing that I'm probably, maybe I'm wrong, right? Maybe my life isn't really that crappy, but it's just my depressed perspective on it. And if I rant about it and vent about it the whole time I'm doing that, I'm just kind of reinforcing this underlying belief rather than giving myself a chance to question it. Hmm. Um, so there's maybe, there are multiple disadvantages, in other words, to, to doing that. Um, I, I wonder to what extent it's, not so much the fact that you're stating the belief or complaining to somebody else, but rather the externalization 
of that allows you to see it from a new light. For instance, uh, if I'm angry about something a couple months ago, I had some, some car problems in the mechanic. I was like, are they incompetent? Why can't they fix it? And I was just getting more and more worked up about this. And I took out my journal and I I just wrote it down. And by the time I was done, I wasn't angry anymore. And I think it was just because it was kind of like, Oh, actually I'm being ridiculous. Uh, I can see that now where I couldn't see it when it was in my head. I can give you a list of reasons why venting could become therapeutic. There are a number of ways. Um, and they're probably what they might be ones that I miss off this list. But for instance, but we know in general, if you just let people vent overall, it, it, it tends not to be that helpful. But some individuals might be doing it slightly differently, or they could be um, helped to figure out a different way. So for instance, if you can imagine venting with mindfulness, so in ga- doing what we call gaining cognitive distance. Mm. So if you went, oh, this guy's like, yeah, it's just trying to me. But at the same time, you were sort of observing yourself doing it. And you, you were using it as an opportunity to shift perspective. It may actually look like you're doing the same thing. But if you can imagine, rather than being completely absorbed in what you're saying, you're kind of simultaneously taking a step back and observing it as if from one side. Like, And that would, now you'd be developing the habit of viewing those beliefs and feelings from a slightly detached perspective, right? It might look exactly the same to other people and sound exactly the same to them, but in your mind, you're doing, it's coming from a slightly different place. That might be therapeutic. There's also, there's another weird thing that we, that's less well researched in psychology, um, but there's a lot of converging stuff, like from early in the 20th century, in the field of behavioral psychology and psychotherapy that suggests there's a mechanism that I like to call negative practice, whereby sometimes if you repeat a behavior, it weakens it. The famous example is the typists um, in secretarial college, uh, the most common on a typewriter, the most common mistake they would make would be to type H-T-E instead of T-H-E when they're typing the. And so a technique that people somehow discovered through trial and error was if they got them to deliberately type HTE over and over and over again, um, they could kind of train themselves to stop doing it. Mm. Now that's counterintuitive, right? Because remember I said earlier, if you repeat a habit, it makes it stronger. Epictetus actually says that. If you want to strengthen that behavior, keep doing it, it'll get stronger each time. But in this example, in the secretarial college, they were deliberately doing it wrong. They were typing HTE over like a hundred times in order to weaken the habit. And how does that work? And the answer is, we kind of know that sometimes it can work, but we don't know for sure exactly. There are multiple theories in psychology about why that works. Um, One is that if you do it repeatedly enough, you create a kind of fatigue, but you'd have to repeat it over and over again. You have to do what's called mass practice where you, you do it many times in rapid succession. So it's like your brain and your nervous system just gets tired of doing it. And then after a while, you associate this kind of feeling of exhaustion with the behavior, and then that damps down or diminishes the strength of the habit in the future. So there may be a way of doing it. That's got to do with how quickly you would do it and how repetitively you would do it. So it could be um, that certain forms of venting might have that effect. Like Mostly they won't. Like, but sometimes they they could. And there's some reason to believe that also your attitude it could be cognitively mediated, as we say. So it could be that if you believe 
that repeating a behavior strengthens the habit, it will. But if you believe that it's going to weaken the habit, then it might have that effect, right? Mm. So those typists in the secretarial college had been told to expect that repeating the behavior would weaken the habit. And so if they believed that and expected it to happen, then repetition had this kind of counterintuitive effect. So maybe if you're absolutely convinced that venting repeatedly is going to weaken the strength and it'd be like a kind of placebo effect in a way or what we sometimes call response expectancy like it would it may have the effect that you expect it to have mm. but we know that generally speaking when you ask people to vent it doesn't help them that much i also wonder about objectivity creeping into the statement without you yeah. even realizing it like in your brain there's no objectivity just rah. but if you actually you know, yes. state it somewhere. You've you've said it divorced of emotion, divorced yeah. of value judgments. You're right. That's another mechanism. I told you there's like a, there's like a bunch that we could list that would potentially change that. This is a deep dive. This is great. I love this stuff, right? Hmm. Hopefully this helps people. So what else might go on here? Like, uh, this is one of the puzzles of therapy, right? Why is it that doing something sometimes helps people and sometimes it doesn't, Right. Well, we've started digging into that. There's multiple reasons. The um, if you you mentioned that you're writing it down, right? So sometimes when you change the format of a feeling that you're expressing, um, or the medium, or change anything actually about the way that you're doing it, it could potentially have an effect. Um, the there are there are re- there are other reasons why that might be the case. Um, one might be you said it introduces more objectivity. Allied with that, it may be that if you change something about it, say you write it down rather than saying it out loud. Now, just because you're doing it in a different way, it might be that you suddenly become more conscious about the process, mm. and that increased consciousness about the process may induce greater detachment, and that might lead to more objectivity that you're less wrapped up in the emotions you're now more aware of the fact that you're a guy writing about how angry he is rather than you know when you're venting it you you get sucked in and and lost in the moment a little bit more another common way to do that is to actually funnily enough to visualize things or you could draw them or paint them but sometimes for instance uh you can often a similar problem would be there are many emotional problems that are caused by what we sometimes term ruminative thinking. Um, so for instance, when you get really angry, you you like have an argument in your mind, oh, this guy's an idiot, and you go on and round and round and round in circles, like arguing, having imaginary arguments with people, arguing with yourself about it. When you're depressed, we call that morbid rumination. So you, why is this happening to me? You know, why, why, what's the point of all? Maybe people have these conversations that go round and round and round about how depressed they are and how pointless the life is. When people are anxious, they engage in what we call pathological worrying. It's a similar kind of thing. They go, what if this happens? What if that happens? How will I cope? Like, And so they tend to pose these questions that they can never fully answer. It's like an endless spiral of conversation. Mm. But again, with worrying in particular, it's fairly common to say, you know, what if, the, what if my girlfriend leaves me? What if I lose my job? What if this happens? Uh, to say to people, what happens if you shut your eyes and actually just visualize the stuff that you're describing rather than talking about it in your head? 
And presenting it in that format for a number of reasons can change the cognitive and the emotional response that people have to it. Uh, it doesn't always work, but in many cases, visualizing it rather than verbalizing it can change the way that people feel about it. Mm. Um, or writing about it rather than uh, verbalizing it orally might change the way they feel about it. But you can also do other stuff. Like you can potentially play around with anything. So you could say, what happens if you, you this angry conversation that you're having with yourself, like what would happen if you were were saying the same stuff, but more slowly? or in a Scottish accent, or uh, what would happen if you, your inner voice you imagined was in a chair over there and you were, you were listening to yourself over there saying it rather than uh, thinking that the words are between your ears. Hmm. Um, what would happen if you had the argument while you're running on a treadmill if that's maybe that's not normally where you you know you have these ruminative arguments for yourself what would happen if you were really relaxing your facial muscles while you tried to have the argument in your head so sometimes there's lots of different levels that you could pull and variables that you could change that might change the emotional effect when people say they're venting you though usually they're doing same facial expression, same body language, same tone of voice, like all the kind of habits together. Mm. And so if you just kind of leave them to their own devices, often they'll just reinforce their their existing um, negative, unhealthy kind of emotional response. But if you start changing things about the way that they express themselves, uh, then potentially, like you say, they may gain objectivity and there might be other therapeutic benefits that they'll achieve. One of the weird things I think about is, you know, most of the effective therapies that we have, they work by helping people to realize, oh, that's a maladaptive coping strategy, or that's a maladaptive way of looking at the world. But I wonder to what extent there's uh, a lot of our problems as a society, and we have, you know, this huge mental health crisis. I wonder to what extent we are essentially getting negative therapy. So if if, yeah. if a positive therapy helps us see our mistaken thinking patterns or helps inculcate better ones, has something happened in the way society functions now yeah. or perhaps some changes that are actually making people weaker and fragile and more prone to depression? Yeah. Like, actually, it's kind of hard to quantify. For There's a number of reasons why it's difficult to really gauge how much worse mental health is in different countries or over time. Um, but I, generally, it seems like, you know, these problems are are, are getting somewhat worse. Um, definitely, there are evil hypnotists out there, as it were, figuratively speaking, right? There's, there's kind of stuff out there that's having a counter-therapeutic effect on us. Some of it even poses as therapy, funnily enough. Right. There's bad advice out there. I'll give you an example. Let's trace it all the way back to a famous philosophy precedent. Socrates in book one of Plato's Republic. Um, I should know. It's in book, book three of Plato's Republic. Socrates is talking about the Greek tragedies. And he says something really weird. Socrates says a lot of really weird stuff. So he's talking to Glaucon, who's Plato's brother. And they're talking about the Greek tragedies, and Socrates says, I, "I don't, I don't really think the Greek tragedies are, you know, are really that healthy for people to be like reading and stuff." And Lucas like, "What are you talking about? This is like universally considered to be the high point 
of Greek culture. It's a very controversial thing to say. Like you can't criticize the tragedies. Like that's the high point of, of Greek art. And Socrates said, well, the thing about it is most of these tragedies are self-inflicted. Like, and so the, the, the main characters, the protagonists are terrible role models. And the point he's making is that the things that Oedipus freaks out about, he doesn't really need to freak out about. Like, you know, there's nothing good or bad that thinking makes it so. Like, it's not things that upset us, but rather our opinions about them. You know, and Socrates is like, yeah, like a wise man wouldn't respond like that to finding out that he accidentally slept with his mother or whatever. Like, you know, he he he'd view it differently. Um and the same the same is true of all the Greek tragedies, basically. Uh Medea murders her own children because she's so upset with her husband. Um and the Stoics were really obsessed with this story because they're like, she could have responded. But there's no reason that she had to respond like that. You know, she could have viewed the whole situation completely. She could have thought, I'm glad that this that this guy's left me. I'm better off without him. She could have said, there's 101 other narratives that she could have told herself about that situation, but she picked the one that's most tragic and upsetting. It's self-inflicted tragedy, though. And the Greek tragedies kind of specialise that in that in a way. And so they're kind of case studies in psychopathology in a way. So that's evil hypnosis that I'm talking about. You know, people go along and they want to be entertained. We are naturally entertained by watching people freaking out about stuff on tv and theater like, yeah reality and, tv uh, no one would watch it if people acted responsibly and were rational about things if people were really philosophical and you know and rational about things they wouldn't yeah we wouldn't have them on reality tv shows we the people on reality tv shows not only are pretty neurotic to begin with like but they probably hammer up for the cameras as well hmm. like they know they get rewarded for behaving in a more childlike, neuro- neurotic manner. And and so do social media influencers. Um, it gets more attention, more eyes on them. The algorithms reward that. Um, people ranting, making sweeping generalizations. Like, you know, it's kind of addictive for us to watch that. And that's exactly the point that Socrates is making. He's, he's like, you know, a wise person wouldn't respond to that but then you wouldn't want to watch a tragedy about a stoic philosopher like <laughs> in that because he would just be like mm. you know indifferent to uh his husband leaving him or you know her husband leaving her or whatever um so that i think we were surrounded by bad role models and there are other reasons why we we tend to be misled i think I also wonder, like, we've got these role models who are, are probably not the best, but there's also, when I was growing up, I don't know if they still use this, but sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. And I almost feel like we have gone in the opposite direction of that, at least, uh, you know, kind of on college campuses where it's, it's, it's okay, well, this speaker could actually hurt you with his words. And so therefore, not only are we going to deprive you of the opportunity to get that stressor and become more resilient by overcoming it, but actually we're going to tell you, actually, this can hurt you. You better go to a, uh, you better not be exposed to this at all. It's bad. It's evil. Let's, let's stop it. And and I feel like that ends up making uh, people weak or or psychologically fragile. The problem is that the truth is somewhere in the middle, right? Mm. It's not that 
words could never hurt anybody and so you know we should forget all about that and, and and it's not the case that we should protect people from everything either but let me give you an example i think the example that people forget i wrote an article about this a while ago and as i was writing it, i realized how complex the answer really was the idea of trigger words on university campuses originally came from the fact that if someone had been um you know, for example, been, been through something traumatic, like they've been a victim of rape, that you wouldn't want to just suddenly show them a video discussing the subject of rape without any prior warning, because people with PTSD literally have it triggered. Like, and you might say, well, that's so unusual. Well, it's not really, actually. Like, say, unfortunately, sexual assault is pretty common. Like, and because there's a social stigma about it, and people don't go around with, like, a badge on that says, I was raped. When I was a kid, like people, the rest of us underestimate how common it is, right? And if you have a class, if you have a lecture theater with a hundred people in it, there's a fairly good chance, especially if you do this on a regular basis, that there are going to be people in the class that have been victims of sexual assault, like just by, you know, the law of averages, you know, statistically, like that's one of the things about being a teacher or a lecturer. If you're lecturing thousands of students, like, you know, you're going to have the larger percentage of them than most people realize are going to have mental health problems. And, you know, very quickly, you're going to find out you only, you only need it to happen once, you know, and then you think, oh, I guess I better not do that again. Like, you know, there's all sorts of problems here. Um, so I should, I should exercise some some caution people don't have complete the thing about ptsd in particular is that it is reflex like it literally changes the way that your body's deep reflexes work i mean the example that everyone's familiar with from watching movies about vietnam and stuff is that if somebody has combat stress or shell shock and they hear a loud noise they have an increased startle reflex so literally someone with PTSD, in many cases, if you got behind them and clap your hands and go, Boo, they'll physically jump higher and the muscles will tense more than somebody that doesn't have PTSD because they have what we call a heightened startle reflex. That's not even cognitively mediated, right? Like It's not voluntary. It's a physiological change in the way that their body works. So it's true that you would just learn through trial and error that you'd figure out, universities would figure out, that it does cause a problem if you talk about certain things in front of a bunch of strangers and large numbers of them. Like, if you have 100 students in a lecture theatre, you only need one of them to bust them to tears, like, for it to become a whole scene and then everyone has to deal with it. And the problems are multi-layered, by the way. I guess often people haven't really thought through the implications of it. If you're a lecturer and you put on a video about uh, sexual assault um, and someone bursts into tears and has a panic attack and runs out of the room, not only is that problematic for them, not only may it make their mental health deteriorate, but it's also in a sense a kind of breach of, an, a sort of breach of conf their personal confidentiality because mm -hmm. now everyone else, and you know what students are like, like everyone else in that room can probably fig put two and two together and figure out that the person that just ran out of the room in tears when the thing about rape came on who may have been a victim of it. So you've kind of broken, you've breached the confidentiality, which is now maybe a, a big social problem for them. 
So they're maybe not going to feel comfortable coming back to lectures in the future. Um, and, it, you know, they, they, so you've got one problem now mounting on top of another for that person. And so after a while, you think, okay, I guess we should give some sort of trigger warning. Mm. Like, it's just so that sort of thing doesn't happen again. Now, you know, how much do you then, it's like the, what we said earlier about having rules. Like, um, it's like saying, you know, like I said earlier, you know, it's a good idea to speak your mind until it isn't. You know, like it's and maybe it's helpful to give people trigger warnings, but then maybe sometimes it's going too far and it might actually become counterproductive. The problem is you'd have to think about it. Like you'd have to kind of weigh it up rationally. But we are all so stupid as a race that we always want to just go to one extreme or the other. We go, no, this is always pointless. Let's never give any trigger warnings. Mm. Or we want to go, no, let's warn people about everything and kind of mollycoddle them. And I think anyone that really thinks seriously about it would be to go, we'd end up thinking maybe in some situations we should do this and in other situations it's better not to. Like, you know, but that would take a whole conversation, Mm. you know, whereas on social media, we just want black and white answers to things. Well, I am really enjoying this conversation and I have a feeling we could go on for some time, but I thought maybe I'd just ask one more question because I want to be respectful of your time and uh, maybe hopefully we can do this in the future again sometime. Um, I was wondering if you would tell us about what your own stoic practice looks like. What do you find that you end up returning to again and again because it works? And maybe are there parts of stoicism which are kind of part of the canon, which you find like, you know, it just doesn't do anything for me or or something like that? Well, I'm an odd person to answer that question in a way. Like I'm in an unusual position because um, for many years I used to teach therapists and write books about it and stuff. So I learned lots of different strategies, and I would sit all day long with clients, teaching them different strategies. And I am in an unusual position as a therapist, because I really believed in therapist modeling, which means that I believed that, I still do believe, that the best way to teach stuff to people is if you do it yourself. So whenever I, um, I was using a different skill or technique, I'd always try and figure out ways that I could practice it and use it. I mean, I'll give you an example. Like, um, sometimes it's hard to do that. Like, so for instance, I don't specialize in pain management, but I did some pain management with clients. And I thought, how can I sit here with any kind of credibility and tell this guy that's having a liver transplant, you know, that I'm going to teach him techniques to cope with the pain and the discomfort and the anxiety if I've never done anything like that myself. And so I taught myself how to do pain management techniques. And, you know, I do things like I pack my arm. There's traditional techniques that I use to induce pain in research. And one of them that are safe, then one of them is to put your arm in a bucket of ice, uh, which gets really painful, like after like about 15, 20 seconds or something like that. It's like torture or something. But uh, there's other types of exercise. You could, you could do the plank, actually, or something like that. And you could use this an exercise that loads of people do. Um, and you can use pain management techniques on that to to cope with it. It becomes very uncomfortable, like after a while, maybe after like a, I say a minute or so. Um, so I tried lots and lots of different techniques, and then over the years, there are techniques that I keep going back to, and then there's ones that I'll use consistently for specific purposes. So, for instance, at the moment, because of a particular book that I'm working on every day 
I'll pretty much every day. Um, I'll sit for about 10 minutes and I'll practice a meditation technique called the Benson method, which I you can't I combine with stoicism. So the Benson method involves just sitting with your eyes shut and repeating a word in your mind every time you exhale. But when I do that, I'll think about the fact that repeating the word is voluntary and the distinction between that and the involuntary aspects of my experience, so the thoughts and memories and impressions that happen automatically. So I use it as an opportunity to heighten my awareness of the distinction between voluntary and involuntary cognitive events or processes, basically. But the technique is just sitting with your eyes shut repeating a word every time you exhale. Um, and then I'll open my eyes and for 10 minutes with a stopwatch, like I'll do a kind of cognitive disputation exercise. Um, and I'll do versions of it, but I'll say it's a Socratic, I'm working on the Socratic method. So I'll maybe take a word like wisdom or justice and I'll write a definition of it. Um, and then I'll try to brainstorm exceptions to the definition. And then I'll try and brainstorm exceptions to the exceptions. Or I'll identify a, a behavior and I'll sit like with a document on my computer and I'll brainstorm pros and cons to doing something. And then I'll try to think up ways to enhance the pros and ways to minimize or prevent the cons. Like, and then I'll shut my eyes and I'll visualize or do a modeling exercise for 10 minutes. So the whole thing takes me half an hour. Um, so I'm doing three things. And I'll imagine that at the moment, because I'm writing a book at Socrates, I imagine that I'm speaking to Socrates. So I always shake his hand first, which he thinks is kind of weird, but he's kind of getting used to it now, right? And then I'll have a conversation um, with him and I'll ask him about stuff that I'm thinking about writing. Um, and he'll kind of give me advice or comment or he'll tell me that he thinks something's a bad idea. Um, and I'm very surprised actually like how little regard Socrates has for historical accuracy. That's something that I would say about him. I imagine Socrates, like he's he's less bothered about he's he's more interested in whether you know something kind of gets a point across than whether it's strictly historically accurate. And I'm like, well, like what would, what did you actually say in the situation? And is it, is this the order that these things actually happened? And he's kind of like, well, what difference does that make? And I was like, well, why did I get it right for the history? And it's like, well, surely the main thing is just to kind of get the point across. <laughs> like, so we have that we have that kind of debate a lot. And I'm like, yeah, but I still kind of want to get the history right. So that that's kind of what I do. It's a sort of modeling exercise for want of a better way of describing it. But the three quite different exercise one is very meditative the other is more like a writing technique and the other is more kind of visualization technique and i do a bunch of other things as well but that's the probably the easiest one to describe that's interesting i feel the same way about uh, i i guess it's been about I don't know, 20 plus years since I was like 17 or something when I first cracked open meditations. And I've read that book so many times that I feel like Marcus is kind of in my brain that I can yeah. actually have conversations with him. Uh, I kind of guess what he'll tell me. I don't know yeah. how accurate that is, but it's kind of how it works with my brain. Yeah, I think in the ancient world, you know, it was more common for people to do that. 
Um, it, you know, they, it seems like they're, well, look at all the dialogues they wrote. You know, mm. that's a kind of variation of the same thing. Um, people who had never met Socrates wrote Socratic dialogues, right? So in order to do that, they have to, it's in some way, I don't know if they literally shut their eyes and visualized it, but they're using, they're having to use their imagination to put words in his mouth. Mm. And, you know, I mean, to be honest, that probably started with Plato. Like, we, I mean, it's generally believed, we're not 100% sure, but more the general belief among scholars is that Plato started off writing dialogues um, he wrote a lot of them. He started off writing dialogues that were fairly accurate representations of what went down. And then after a while, he kind of, there was more and more poetic license until by the end of it, he's just kind of making stuff up that mm. he, you know, he wants Socrates to say, um, or that he thinks Socrates might plausibly have said, um, such as the theory of forms, which Aristotle specifically tells us uh, Plato made up. Um, and yet Plato portrays Socrates saying it. So, you know, it, it could be that Plato's just like, I'm going to pretend Socrates said this. Or it might be that Plato's thinking, I can imagine Socrates would say this sort of thing if he was given the chance, mm. or some maybe somewhere in between. But the, this wasn't an unusual thing for people to do. And it's a natural human instinct uh, to engage in this sort of imaginative exercise just that you described. Okay, I know I promised that was the last question, but I actually got one more for you. This is super okay. academic, and I've been wondering about it for years, and I know you're writing a, a biography of Marcus Aurelius, so oh, cool. I'm going to throw this at you. Uh, so by my best count, uh -huh. um, something like a for 132 years after Marcus died, there were at least 15 Roman emperors that adopted all or part of his name when they got to the yeah. throne. And I've always wondered, was this merely an attempt to say as uh his as the immediate successors to Commodus did that oh actually Marcus is you know adopted me and you know that he just didn't tell anyone which is is kind of patently ridiculous like I'm part of that legitimate dynasty too or was this because even a hundred plus years after his death that the Roman people still thought of him as the best emperor of the of member of you know their era that, that this was something that the new emperors wanted to try to live up to and try to insinuate that they would be like them by adopting his name actually i'm not so much of an expert on the things that happened generations after so after marcus's death i know a lot about marcus uh marcus's life but i my belief is that yes you're right that they are looking back to a golden age for mm. i hear some clues Right, Cassius Dio, who um, became a senator under Commodus, explicitly says that, uh, literally says, like that Marcus Aurelius's reign was the end of a golden age, and after that, he says the Roman Empire turned to an era of uh, rust, uh, iron and rust, he says, rather than mm. the golden age. Uh, it all kind of went downhill from there. Um, I mean, that's a bit of a simplification of history, but for sure, I think the Romans looked back on Marcus Aurelius as a kind of golden age, um, and they wanted to identify themselves with that. And also, um, the Severans kind of probably set a, a precedent in that regard, and then other people just sort of followed it. Mm. Um, you know, but they also the interesting thing is that they want to identify with Marcus more than they want to identify with Commodus, which maybe isn't a surprise, but it kind of reinforces the idea that Commodus was probably perceived as a bad emperor. 
and Marcus was probably perceived as a good one. And also, incidentally, some people argue about this. There's, here's a real bit of trivia for you. Marcus ruled as co-emperor alongside his adoptive brother, Lucius Verus. And Lucius Verus is kind of made out to be not a bad person, but kind of a neglectful emperor, like a, actually literally a drunkard, like an alcoholic, and uh, negligent of his duties, basically. And the, and the Roman, and Cassius Dio and Historia Augusta and stuff, and some people think that's unfair. It's like Roman propaganda or whether it's biased. There's a good biography called Lucius Verus and the Roman Defense of the East that came out fairly recently that tries to make the case for defending Lucius Verus. And I think it's awesome. I love reading it, but I don't agree with it. Like, I think probably Lucius Verus was a bit like that. And again, I'm not aware, like subsequent generations, it's Marcus that they want to identify with, not his adopted brother. Mm-hmm. Like, n- no one looks back um and says do you remember do you remember the golden age of lucius ferris really <laughs> yeah say, it doesn't happen like why not like you know because he well he probably was at least to some extent like he the the histories present him as being and just a guy that if you were roman emperor like in a lot of the movies and you've got a lot of money and you can do anything do you just go hey let's party or do you think I'm going to sort out the world? And I think Marcus really thought I'm going to I'm going to try and fix the world. And Lucius Verus thought, hey, I'm just going to go and enjoy myself with all this power. And and well, he wasn't a bad guy, but mm. you know he was more interested in being a kind of celebrity and partying and stuff. I think I, there's some evidence of that in his private correspondence, even which is kind of direct evidence where he writes to Fronto, Marcus's rhetoric tutor. And he asks him to do something which some people might think is normal behavior. I don't think Marcus did it. Um, he he literally asks Fronto to kind of cook the books and fabricate aspects of his history that he's writing about the Parthian War to make Lucius Verus look better. Um, so that's obvious that, that's vanity and dishonesty that you you don't really see any, any evidence of Marcus Aurelius exhibiting. And it kind of confirms the idea that he wasn't a particularly noble character. He wasn't a he wasn't an awful genocidal maniac or anything, but he was like a bit of an egotist, maybe, and a uh, you know not like uh, not like a wise or just yeah. emperor. Um, so I think it, he definitely Marcus was highly regarded. I mean, the interesting thing is it, it would be false to say that nobody had beef with Marcus because there was a civil war. You know, there's hard facts. Like There was definitely a civil war. There's no question about that. And we talk about it being the civil war of Avidius Cassius. But he had seven legions under his command and every one of them was commanded by, presumably, uh, an officer of the senatorial class. Um, and he had a number of other high-ranking officials and statesmen. It sounds like there was a whole faction in the Roman Senate that wanted to uh, support the civil war and oppose Marcus. So there was a bunch of powerful people that had uh, objections against Marcus Aurelius. Um, nevertheless, I think subsequent generations look back on him as being one of the, the better emperors. Mm. Interestingly, today, many people look, this, now this becomes a plug, there's a good segue into a plug for my book. They, um, so I've written three books in a row about Marcus Aurelius. I wrote a self-help book called How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. 
I wrote a graphic novel called Verismus, and I just wrote a biography of him for Yale University Press, which will come out in spring 2024. Now, the problem with that is that there are also already a bunch of biographies of Marx Aurelius that are really good. There's Anthony Burley and Frank McClins and a bunch of others. So I had to kind of think of a different angle and in a number of ways. And it seemed to me that most of the biographies, or none of the biographies really look that much at how Marcus's use of Stoic philosophy actually influenced his decisions as an emperor. And that seems a bit of a cop-out to me. I think that's what most people want to know. So I tried to lean more into what the relationship between his philosophy and his behaviour as, as emperor was, um, basically kind of uh, weaving those th those two things together. Um, and, you know, there are things that kind of emerge from that telling of his story that are like a, a little bit different. Um you know, I talk a bit more about the critics of Marcus and why they, they would have opposed him, um, for example. I think he was, the, to me, the evidence suggests that Marcus was seen as a military dove. Um, it's What evidence we have is that the faction that broke away wanted him to adopt a much more aggressive military uh, line. The other thing that struck me as kind of odd in a way is that I don't think the existing biographies of Marcus say enough about his relationship with Hadrian. Um, funnily enough, I saw someone commented once I was talking about this and they said, that's ridiculous. Marcus barely knew Hadrian. That's not true. Um, Marcus, like, Hadrian had a huge influence over Marcus's early life. Well, they lived together for a while. He moved they in lived with to, He moved into his house for it was about three or four months, if I remember rightly, towards the end of Hadrian's life. He lived in Hadrian's villa, Yeah. Like, but even prior to that, like Hadrian made all these decisions about controlling and shaping uh, Marcus's future. He was life was very entwined with with Hadrian's um, goals for him. And what I was going to say is that Marcus being looked back on as a good emperor today, we often people often point to Hadrian as being one of the better Roman emperors. But when Marcus knew him, um, and for example. The book Memoirs of Hadrian um, by Marguerite Yursenar is a, a, a classic, but it's historical fiction and it portrays Hadrian in a very positive light. And it, it, it consists, by the way, of letters that Hadrian's supposed to be writing to Marcus Aurelius, although we never see Marcus's reply. So it's about their relationship in a sense. Um, but it, it's a real whitewashing of Hadrian. It makes him, it excuses every, all the bad things that he does, basically. But by the time Hadrian, Marcus knew Hadrian, by the time he certainly by the time he moved into his villa, Hadrian was a train wreck. Like, I mean, it was horrific what was going on. Um, you know, he was having political purges in part against members of Marcus's family. He was a physical mess. Um, you know, his his uh, he was in terrible, terrible physical condition. He kept trying to commit suicide. Um, and he he moved out of Rome. He had this villa outside of Rome, like so. It was clear that he, he he was setting himself up in kind of opposition to the Senate. Like he didn't see himself as part like uh, part of the system that was ruling Rome. And uh, they they wanted uh, to refuse to deify him after his death to annul his acts and so on. So it's pretty clear the Senate couldn't stand him. We're told that repeatedly. They hated him. You know, um, 
at the very least, it's pretty clear that Cassius Dio couldn't stand him, and he was a senator. Like, and he says the other senators couldn't stand him either, and that that's fairly clear. Um, so Marcus, I think you know, we talk, we have this positive, fairly positive image of, of Hadrian. I think Marcus is a much more negative impression of Hadrian, and and people look back, and Marcus was a little bit surprising is they they don't seem to talk as much about Antoninus Pius as being a great role model, although he was just as good a ruler in many ways as Marcus Aurelius. And their um, their roles overlap significantly because the way that we think of the succession is there's this emperor and then there's another one that replaces him. It's not really how it works necessarily in practice. Like often there's a kind of overlap. So Marcus ruled in a sense alongside Antoninus Pius as virtually his co-emperor for about, I think it was like about 13 or 15 years or something like that, towards the end of Antoninus's reign. Marcus was called Caesar, but he was given a bunch of imperial powers, like, and he was effectively Antoninus's right-hand man. And so when Marcus then appointed a co-emperor, he was only really making a small tweak to the way that things had worked previously. You know, he, he, he had similar powers under Antoninus Pius, he just didn't have the title, um, Augustus. Um, and that's what he changed. But uh, yeah, there's an overlap between their role, and yet it's Marcus that seems more of the celebrity, the history, the, the the role model that people look back to in subsequent generations. Mm -hmm. um, they, now, the other thing I thought you were going to say that's odd is, as you might expect, we're told that philosophy became trendy mm. under Marcus Aurelius. And there's people have written articles claiming that Marcus Aurelius wasn't a Stoic, that he wasn't a philosopher. I mean, I could talk all day about the evidence regarding that, but I think it's absurd. Like, you know, I think Marcus was almost definitely famous as a Stoic philosopher during his lifetime. I think that's fairly clear from the historical mm. record. And yet, as soon as he pops his clocks, it's tumbleweed. Like we hear virtually nothing about mm. Stoicism um, after his death, despite the fact that we're told he traveled through the East, spreading the popularity of Stoicism to the Eastern provinces. And he went to Athens and set up chairs in philosophy that he funded, including one in Stoicism. We don't even know the name of the professor um, that was given that chair or what happened to him, though. It's, we hear about Epictetus, we hear about Marcus Aurelius, and then Stoicism kind of goes out in a blaze of glory. The last Stoic standing is the most famous Stoic in history. Mm. Um, and it's it's has since, you know, creates a huge wave of popularity in Stoicism. And then suddenly no one's interested in it anymore. And, you know, Neoplatonism kind of becomes the next big thing. I don't know why. I, I, the most obvious answer to it would be it's got something to do with Commodus. You know, it may be like, and there's no evidence of this, but there may be something about the rule of Commodus that led to Stoicism falling out of popularity or being actively suppressed or something like that. Um, but it, it kind of fades. Well, if you think about what 
Epictetus writes about, oh, you know, if you're, you have to try, he, he kind of mocks people who are trying to be the friend of the emperor and all the problems that come associated with that. And if you're, if you need to toady up to Commodus, you can't let him know that he's just the, as annoying as his dad and wants to talk about philosophy. And I also think about like, you know, Galen was Marcus's physician. And I wonder to what extent, like he, he wrote books about philosophy. And, and in the back of my mind, I was wondering like, how much is this br obviously brilliant man actually interested in this subject or how much of it is a display to kind of get noticed? Sure. And, and, and I kind of wonder to what extent the, the bubble of philosophy that exists around that period just popped with Marcus. And suddenly since the next guy isn't into it, I better find out oh well gladiators sound pretty good let's talk about gladiators it's got i mean i just don't feel maybe if we dug even deeper there's some clues there in commodus's uh rule but i i don't know um i just don't know but I, i've got a hunch um that something something happened around that time yeah maybe commodus just didn't want philosophers he thought they were too opinionated or judgy or something like that he couldn't mm. he couldn't bear it um well all of he... his father's friends and advisors probably would have been judgy toward what he was doing the only clue that we have in that regard is that something that i guess a lot of people don't know there's a historical figure that's a little tiny bit like the character of maximus in the movie gladiator so Marcus Aurelius had a son-in-law called Pompeianus, hmm. who was his senior general on the Danube frontier. And he's depicted in the Aurelian column, uh, for example, standing by Marcus's side, we believe. Um, and he not only was he Marcus's son-in-law, but he married L Lucius Verus's widow, Lucilla, who was an Augusta. So he kind of, in a sense, married... You know, it doesn't translate from Latin into English, but he, he's, in a sense, he's married to an empress and he's the son-in-law of Marcus Aurelius and he's his right-hand man. Mm -hmm. So he's he's kind of next in line to the throne in a sense. You know, he's, he's Commodus's main rival in that regard. Marcus, we're told, asked him to become Caesar. So he would have been co-emperor with Commodus or an interim ruler or something like that, but he refused for some reason. And um, we don't know exactly why. And we're also told that Marcus pleaded with him to be Commodus's mentor and advisor and to be a guardian to him after Marcus Aurelius died. But Commodus bailed on him. Um, he left Pompeianus on the Danube frontier and went back to Rome. So he got as far away from him as he could. And after that, Pompeianus kind of disappears largely. Um, from politics. So maybe that's a reflection of what happened to Marcus's allies and advisors in general that were kind of sidelined by Commodus and he sort of avoided them. And, you know, if they survived, it was because they went into obscurity, mm. like to, to stay out of his way, perhaps. Um, I think the reason that he refused to become, there's one possible explanation. Um, one is that there's some evidence that he had health problems that he went blind. Um, so that could be. Um, but I think there's another reason, cut a long story short, it may be that he was concerned that if he became, was appointed Caesar, that it would cause a civil war. 
Um, I always think the, one of the main motivations that the Romans have, um, that you could say the Senate has, is to avoid the risk of civil war. And there was a civil war. But I think that kind of friction, that schism, um, would maybe have been exacerbated if Pompeianus had been appointed Caesar or subsequently as uh, co-emperor. Um, and but maybe that's a good place to end because one of the common questions people have about Marcus Aurelius' role is they say, even uh, Cassius Dio says this, um, that he thinks Marcus Aurelius was a great emperor, it was a golden age, and he goes, there was only one failing that he had. Um, which is actually I can point to other feelings that he perhaps had, but he says the one feeling he had was he left behind him a son who was good for nothing. Because mm. his deal, he served as a senator from the Commons, really can't stand him. Um, and I, my view about that is that the Senate and actually everybody in Rome would have, to put it very simply, generally have believed, particularly people in the provinces, would have said that a bad emperor is better than a civil war. like Because a bad emperor might have political purges and stuff like that, but he only really bothers the Senate. Uh, if I live in Athens or somewhere, or if I'm living in in, in Britain, like or some far-flung province, I probably don't really care that much if Commodus is emperor. He doesn't, you know, probably life goes on fairly as normal. He's not really going to bother me too much. If there's a civil war, though, everybody... And the empire is potentially dragged into it. The Romans knew that very well. Mm. So I think sometimes they would say we'd rather just have a bad emperor that really upsets the Senate if we have to, rather than having you know a succession crisis in a civil war. Mm. Yeah, well, a good place to wrap up. And where can people find more information about you if they if want to know more? Um, they can go to my website, which is just donaldrobertson.name. They can, you know, they can find me on Substack. I've got a newsletter and a podcast and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, they can find all my books on Amazon and things pretty easily. Great. Uh, well, I definitely, listeners, check out Donald's books. And uh, I appreciate your time so much. Thanks for coming on. Been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd appreciate it if you would give us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcasting app you use to listen. It helps other people find this podcast and ultimately helps me keep doing this. Thank you.